The Old Testament reading this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1, which can be found on page 723 of your pew Bible. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. And the New Testament reading comes from Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through, I'm told there's a typo, it's actually chapter, or uh, verse 39, so I'll be reading that. That's on page 1037 in your pew Bible. Luke 8, verse 26. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus has commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him, and they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured, Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear, so he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with them, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Sherman Street. Look at this. It's like a magical glass of water. Henry does this for us. It's fabulous. Um, all right. Uh, so I heard this great story. It's from a book written by a guy named Mark Laberton, who's a pastor and an author, um, about an elderly woman named Doris. I think a few years ago, Tony might have told you this story, but I'm telling you again. Um, anyway, she was getting into her car one day, and uh, somebody hit her from behind and like pushed her into her car, but then over the center console into the passenger seat, and then he got in. Um, and he drove her around from ATM to ATM, forcing her to withdraw her money and give it to him. And when Doris was first thrown into the car, uh, the first thing that she did was ask her kidnapper his name. 
uh, which, like, she's my hero. That is not what I would do. <laughs> I would be much more panicked and incoherent. Uh, his name was Jesse. And Jesse, she found out, was caught in the throes of addiction and needed money to get drugs. And as they drove around town, Doris told Jesse that God wanted better things for him and that she would pray that he would get caught so that she could go to court and tell a judge that he needed to be put into a good rehab center. Um, apparently, she made enough of an impact on Jesse that when they had hit the limit at the ATMs and couldn't get any more money, instead of just running off, he helped Doris out of her side of the car and into the driver's side and gave her a kiss on her cheek and then ran off. <laughs> and he did eventually get caught, and Doris ID'd him for the police and did tell the judge, just as she had promised, that she wanted him sent to a good rehab center. Um, like, I don't know what I would do in a situation like that. Uh, probably, like, cowering and screaming, those kinds of things. Uh, and Doris was able to see past her fear and love her enemy. Um, and when she, it, it is because, I think, when she looked at Jesse, she didn't just see the ways that he was hurting her and stealing from her. She saw a human in need of deliverance. Doris saw Jesse, and she helped him in some small way to come back to himself, beginning by asking him his name. The story that we just read of Jesus with the demon-possessed man goes a little bit differently, but with the same kind of calm courage, Jesus faces this terrifying person. And someone who wanders through the tombs naked, out of his mind, strong enough to break free from any chains that bound him, set always on returning to this place of death. Mark tells us, Mark tells us um, we read from Luke, but in the same story in Mark, uh, we hear that day and night he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Like he is a scary, unpredictable kind of person but Jesus sees in him a human being in need of deliverance and begins by asking him his name. It is so small and so personal and so powerful. The man we heard doesn't give his name, right? Instead, it is the demons that torment him that answer. Legion is the name they give. It says, for many demons had entered him. Of course, that's not a name at all. It is the, it's the word for a group of Roman soldiers, about 6,000 soldiers. This man is held captive from every direction. One writer um, pointed out how devastating it is that this man has no identity left but the things that he is held captive to. His home, his family, his clothing, even his name are gone. There's almost nothing left of him. For us uh, modern readers, uh, this kind of passage brings up all sorts of questions, most of which I have no answers for. Um, like I've known people who behave in this kind of way, um, and they are indeed captive, but I would say probably to mental illness and trauma. Um, you know, our culture, we know a lot about mental illness, and we don't know a lot about dark spiritual forces. Um, I believe in those forces. I think that they are real, but I just don't know how that works. Um, 
And I have no idea how to talk about how it relates to mental illness. Like, was that just a different way of talking about the same kind of thing? Um, we definitely know that there has been a lot of harm done by people who have demonized mental illness and insisted that you're sick because you have a demon, right? Um, and, and still, in my own experience, like, it's for sure true that um, my depression isn't somehow related to lies that I believe. And of course, evil traffics in lies. So I think there's this connection, but I don't, I don't understand it. I'd also say that those lies were given to me by trauma and made easier to believe by messed up brain chemistry. And I take medication for them, you know? I have been healed through counseling and medication, and I have also been healed through prayer and miraculous deliverance. Um, my hunch is that the physical and the spiritual are connected in ways that our culture does not understand. Um, and I don't really think that we need to understand. Uh, I was, you know, I kind of asked this question around the, before we prayed this morning in the office, and someone was like, that's just not the point of the story. The point is, whatever it is, Jesus is bigger than it. Um, which is a good answer. So here is what we do know. Here's what the demons who were tormenting this man did to him. They convinced him to destroy his own relationships, his livelihood, his dignity, his sense of self. They led him into isolation and self-harm. They persuaded him that he was better off in the tombs among the dead rather than among the living. Oh, in times of depression and even when I'm relatively healthy, those are things that I can identify with. I don't know... Um, I don't know how much of you, I'm, I just imagine most of you would say the same. You know, we are constantly battling against things in this world that would lead us to the tombs. That would steal our agency, our dignity, our community. That would lead us away from the things of life. Um, Debbie Thomas said, what ails human beings is legion. Just so many different directions. We may not entirely understand what's happening here, but we sure can relate to it. And so, too, can we relate to that powerful question that Jesus asks, what is your name? And I don't understand even why it's so powerful. Like, it has a very clear answer. Jen. My name is Jen. Uh, <laughs> but maybe, maybe it's because Jesus is asking, and we know that Jesus sees something more than that, or maybe... We know that there's something more than that. You know, when Jesus asks this question, the answer isn't so much about what people call us, it's about who we are on the deepest level. Like Doris and Jesse, even asking the question is evidence that somehow we are already seen. Even if the answer we give just names the worst part of ourselves, like Legion, even that is the beginning of something new. There's so much power in naming. Naming our fears, naming those things that plague us, naming what we are captive to. Um, in trying to ask, answer Jesus' question for myself this week, I came up with like a thousand different names. But mostly they weren't things that I knew for sure about myself. They were all kind of like, maybe this. And I think 
It's because the, I think maybe the question is so powerful because for many of us the answer is, I guess I don't really know. So the things I came up with were things like, things I'm afraid are true, right? Like, bad mom, bad person, useless. Or things that I'm afraid will consume me, you know, traits that I'm afraid will just take over, like anxious or exhausted. Or things that I'm afraid that I'll be defined or limited by, like irresponsible, scattered. Like, and none of those things are my name. But I am sure scared that they might be who I am. On some level, each of them feels like threatening enough, powerful enough that it just might take me over, that it might be the thing that drags me to the tombs. And sometimes they do to a degree, right? Though for me, the tomb is endless Facebook scrolling or Candy Crush. <laughs> it's true. Um, <laughs> or it's like just avoiding dealing with hard things because I'm too scared which then just sends me further into the fear, right? Or it's a refusal to take ownership of my life. Like, these are the tombs that I can live in. I haven't gotten to the point of legion. But there is something I understand about being captive to these other names. And it's really, I think, hard to put my finger on, and maybe you experienced this this week, like, what is it that makes those names so powerful, so terrifying? And what's, I think, lovely in this story is that even when the name is Legion, Jesus doesn't seem threatened at all. The whole confrontation actually seems pretty easy for him, um, not at all like the exorcisms we see in movies. He just has a chat with the man, a chat with the things that plague him. He's even kind of like kind to the demons, and they leave. And the man, of course, is not calm. The demons within him panic and throw him to the ground and beg Jesus not to torture him. But Jesus is not afraid. He's not in a hurry. He's not even, like, flexing his muscles or making a face at them, as far as I know. Uh, <laughs> and this passage comes directly after the stilling of the storm. And you get this same kind of feel from it. Like, the disciples are terrified of the storm, and Jesus is like, why? And here people have been repeatedly dragging this man out of the tombs and chaining him up, just desperately trying to contain him. And Jesus just has a chat and is done with it. Like, I find that ease comforting. Maybe like the storm, there's actually nothing to be afraid of at all. No matter what names rise up for you, no matter how terrifying, Jesus can, you know, send them away with a flick of his wrist. No matter, no matter how much they seem to have a grip on you, Jesus will see you beyond them and call you back. At the end of the story, the man is sitting at Jesus' feet like a disciple, clothed and in his right mind. He has been cured, it says in verse 36. And that word cured, um, you could translate it healed or saved or made whole. Our salvation is you know, all-encompassing. 
I love the image of him sitting there quietly, made whole. All that was raging in him just made still. He has experienced the freedom and peace of the kingdom of God all at once. Uh, Mostly, I think we find our freedom comes much more slowly in fits and starts over years of formation. Like it came for the disciples, right? Who slowly, over years, learned to quiet the voices of acquisition and competition and violence and learned instead to surrender to the voice of love. Sometimes Jesus brings our healing quickly with a bang. Sometimes slowly. Sometimes a little of both. But either way, Jesus is not too worked up about it. It's just not too much for him. This is the only thing that Jesus does in this place, which is kind of interesting. Like in verse 22 of this chapter, Jesus says, like, let's go to the other side of the lake. He doesn't give a reason. Um, He just says, let's go, and the disciples take him. And on the lake, they run into a storm that they run into the storm that Jesus stills, and then they come ashore in the region of the Gerasenes, and where they meet this man, and Jesus heals heals him. It seems like they hang out for a bit because the man has time to get his clothes on, and to sit at Jesus's feet, and there's time for word to spread around town so that the people come and see. And right after that, Jesus and the disciples go back across the lake. And it kind of makes you wonder, like, did Jesus just go there for that man? Did he come all this way just to make this one tormented man whole again? I don't know, but it wouldn't be out of character for God to step out of God's way to heal someone. That's like the whole story of the incarnation. Jesus came all of this way crossing the great divide for our healing, to see us, to know us, and to give us a new name. This story is the only time when Jesus actually asks someone their name. Um, I don't know, maybe he did it because the man needed to name his reality to be free from it. Uh, I don't know, but Jesus is usually the one who gives names. It's still that same action of seeing beyond the surface. Not just how people behave, but what they will be. Or maybe better to say, um, not just what they have done, but who they truly are. The names that God gives have this strange way of calling the people forward into them. Like, God called Abram, Abraham, the father of many nations, even while he and Sarah had no children at all. Jesus called Zacchaeus by his given name, Zacchaeus, which means righteous one. Even while he was still a thief, before he had given his money back to the poor and paid back what he had stolen. He called Simon Peter, which means rock, while he was still hot-headed and arrogant and unsettled, like far from a rock. But all of these people became what God called them, even if they did have a few false starts along the way. And so we too learn sometimes slowly and sometimes quickly to leave aside the many names that threaten and terrify us, the names that lead us to the tombs. 
and we learn to take on the names that God has given us. Like learning to follow Jesus is largely about learning who you are. When Jesus uh, went into the desert and was tempted, it was at the level of identity that the devil tempted him. Like, if you really are the son of God, the devil said over and over. If you really are the son of God, then prove it. And Jesus each time said something to the effect of, I don't have to prove it to you. I know who I am. Just before he was led out into the desert for his temptation, he had been baptized. And in his baptism, he had heard from his father who he was. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So then in the temptation, it was this voice that he remembered. Years ago, um, I had a spiritual director who reminded me that in our baptisms, we take on that same blessing that was given to Jesus. In baptism, our sinful selves are put to death with Christ and we are raised again with him. And so what is true about Jesus becomes true about us. She told me to repeat this blessing to myself as I went through the day. So whenever I felt those other names rising up, threatening me, I would repeat to myself the truth of my baptism. This is my daughter, whom I love. With her, I am well pleased. That is who you are. Whatever answers you may have given to the question, what is your name? This is who you are. You are God's beloved child. With you, God is well pleased. You are the one for whom God has gone out of the way to make whole. You are the one who was worthy of that journey. You are God's beloved child. God is pleased with you. And whatever part of that name doesn't ring true for you yet, that's okay. The, name God, the names that God gives us have a way of drawing us forward into them, of making them real in us. Like God made this whole world through naming. Let there be light, and there was light. Through God's words, the world was made. And through them again, you are made new. Let's pray. Lord, may we know your names for us. Your beloved children. Your delight, your friend. Lord, may we um, sink deeper into those names. That whatever other things, whatever other forces 
whatever else would try and name us, that we would turn again to you, knowing who we are in you. In Jesus' name, amen.